Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? It is good to see you. Are you ready to go? Some of you are like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be getting up for. So let me tell you what we've got going on. Last week, Pastor Craig walked us through the first part of our Kingdom and Empire series where he talked about the life of Jesus. Today, we get to set that life in the larger narrative of the biblical story. So some of you have known that this was coming. For others of you, this is going to be like, well, I picked a pretty good day to show up at Central because here's what we're going to do. We are going to run a timeline from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. We're gonna cover the entire Bible in the time frame that's gonna be roughly half the time of a full-length feature film that you would go to the movies to see. And you do not have to take any notes today because what we're going to do is we're gonna fill this 45-foot-long timeline and you're gonna get a copy of this thing when you walk out through those doors this afternoon. Does that sound like a plan? So here's the invitation for you to just sit back To take this whole thing in, there's a ton of information. There's a lot in the Bible, by the way. And the goal here is that if you've been a Christian for 50 years, or if you step into Central Day going, I know nothing about the Bible, that all of us together will leave going, I understand what the Bible is all about. I understand the grand narrative. I understand where Jesus came in the midst of it. And I understand what this whole thing is all about. About So let me warn you, buckle your seatbelts because we are going to fly through this. But by the end, hopefully we will be all set on what this story is all about. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Waters in the biblical text is a picture of chaos. God speaks in the midst of this and the universe leaps into existence and order. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating a good world, a world of planets and palm trees and porcupines and funky little fish that puff up when scared, all right, and people. It's a beautiful and vibrant world that the creator is very pleased with because over and over and over again, God says in Genesis 1, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good. And we recognize that when God creates humanity, that he does something in us that reflects him. We are called image bearers. Now we understand God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is a community unto God's self. And so as image bearers, we reflect this relational reality to who we are. And we recognize that in the beginning of the story, four relationships are created. There is a relationship that we have with God. There is a relationship that we have with ourselves. There's a relationship that we have with one another. And there's a relationship that we have with creation. Now, the word that we use to ascribe the goodness and the wholeness of what God has created in Genesis 1 and 2 is a Hebrew word by the word shalom. Okay, I was gonna say by the name of, but you get shalom. Now, when we translate shalom into English, we translate it as what? Peace, very good. But when we hear peace, we hear an absence of conflict or serenity of the inner soul. But the word shalom is much bigger than that. It is a word that means wholeness, well-being. Everything is as God intends it to be. And there is shalom 
in the midst of the garden. Now, in Genesis 2, which is a more focused account of God creating Adam and Eve, God brings Adam into this garden of Shalom, and he says to Adam, Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Which is God's way of saying to Adam, Adam, if you introduce sin into the storyline, death comes with it because it's linked. And God says to Adam, Adam, I need you to obey me about the tree. But we know what happens, don't we? Because when we come to Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve take from the tree, they eat its fruit and sin and death enter the story. See, death wasn't part of the original story. Brokenness, pain, chaos, cancer, famine, tsunamis, earthquakes, tragedies. This wasn't supposed to be part of the story. But when they took of the fruit, everything broke down, including these four relationships. And we see it very clearly in how the writer conveys the story in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve have taken of the fruit. Notice how it begins in verse 8, after they've taken the fruit. And by the way, here's what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to be reading a number of passages and I'm going to be referencing a lot of passages. Again, you can just sit there and just take this whole thing in if that's what you'd like to do. Verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, where are you? Now God didn't lose them. God doesn't lose Adam and Eve in this moment. By the very fact, though, that God asked this question, it indicates that the relationship between us and God has been fractured. And then Adam is going to respond to God's question. And here's what's fascinating, is that in the first seven verses of chapter three, all of the language used in connection to Adam and Eve is plural. They, them, themselves. It's all plural language. And then you get to Adam's response. Listen to how he responds in verse 10. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I, 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 I. Sin is a focus upon ourselves. And in this moment, we recognize that the relationship with ourself has been fractured. And then notice God's response in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then the man replied, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. First instance of the blame game right here. And now we recognize that the relationship between one another has been fractured. And then in verse 17, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. That our relationship with creation has been fractured. You see, at the beginning of the story, God created a beautiful world. Stunning, whole, a place of shalom. And God said to Adam, do not eat of the tree. And yet Adam and Eve ate from the tree. And in one 
moment of rebellion. Everything shattered. The goodness and wholeness was shattered. And it's in this moment that in the midst of the shattering of this shalom in the garden, that God looks on the broken pieces and God doesn't say, huh, that didn't happen the way I thought it would. Let's scrap all the pieces and let's start anew. No, God looks on the broken pieces of creation and he says, I want to put the whole thing back together. And in this moment, we see that God puts a plan in place and we're just gonna simply say, for God, it is now about the restoration of all things. And in his words to the serpent in Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, because of this, there will come one, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Well, from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11... Yeah, this is what God says. God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this whole thing back together. Things don't go off on a really great note from there because between Genesis 11 or Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, the escalation of violence and wickedness spin completely out of control. That it's through the flood and through the Tower of Babel where God gets a bit of order restored in the chaos that has broken out. But it's in Genesis chapter 12 where we see God's restoration project really get kicked into high gear because God comes to a man by the name of Abram in Genesis 12 who will later be called Abraham and God does something very interesting. This is what he says to Abram. Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. He says, basically, I want you to leave your extended family and leave the land and I'm gonna give you new land and I'm gonna give you new family. But then he says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Understand what God does in this moment is God comes to a man and he says, I've got a plan in place and I want to partner with you to make things right. See, God looks on the broken pieces and could God have fixed all of these pieces by himself? Absolutely. But for whatever reason, God said, I want to partner with humanity to bring about my purposes in this world. And you see this really first and foremost with Adam because God says, Adam, Let's partner together. I want you to steward my creation. And we see that Adam and Eve blew it and God's call to Abram is really God's answer to the failure of Adam. And God says, I wanna partner with you and I wanna put my blessings in you so that all people will then be blessed through you. Which is so cool because God basically says to Abram, you have been blessed for the sake of others. This is how blessing is always intended. It was intended then, it was intended now. When we receive a blessing, it isn't just for us. It's intended to be passed along to others as well. And God's gifts to a few are to be God's gifts to a whole. And this is how God is going to work his plan of the restoration of all things. And God chooses Abram. 
And we say, okay, well, we, we get that there's a, a, a plan in place, but, but what are the people supposed to do? What are they supposed to be about? Well, in three chapters later, God affirms to Abram, by the way, you are going to have new land and a new family, which is really great news to Abram because he's almost hit the century mark and he doesn't have any kids. And God says, you will have kids. Well, then three chapters later, we get more specifically why God has chosen Abraham and his descendants and what they're supposed to be about. Because in Genesis chapter 18, we get this of God speaking about this whole thing about Abram and his descendants. Verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Here's how they're gonna do it. By doing righteousness and justice. Your text will read right and just. It's actually the words justice and righteousness. So we get land and family in Genesis 15. And then here in Genesis 18, we get these words of justice and righteousness. Now these are two forms of justice. This first word that gets translated into English as justice is the word mishpat in Hebrew, M-I-S-H-P-A-T, for those of you who will be listening again later. Mishpat is a word that means legal justice. It's the idea that in order to have a thriving and healthy society, the rights of individuals must be protected, and if those rights are violated and stomped on by somebody else, there is something in place to deal with that. That is the word that gets translated as justice. It's legal justice. This word righteousness in the Hebrew is the word zedakah, T-Z-E-D-E-K-A-H. This is a word that means social justice. Now, don't hear socialism in this. God is totally fine with people having wealth. It's what they do with their wealth that matters. The idea of social justice is that everyone is entitled to having their basic needs met. And God says, Abraham, this is what your people are to be about. You are to be about justice and righteousness because friends, understand, there is no shalom without justice. Now, shalom encompasses more than just justice, but it's nothing less than justice. And God says, this is what my people are to be about. They're to have a legal system that keeps order, that for those people who have needs that they can't fulfill on their own, people are there to help and provide for them so that everybody has their basic needs. And God says, this is going to tell something about the world, about how my people function. Well, the rest of Genesis then follows this family. Abraham and his wife Sarah will have a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac will get married. He has uh, a wife by the name of Rebekah, and they have twins, Jacob and Esau. The storyline will follow Jacob. Jacob will then have 13 children. He has 12 boys and a daughter. And let me tell you something. The daughter's name is Dina, and she always gets left out of the conversation. So we're going to give her her due. He has a daughter named Dina. Now she's had her due, and now we got to go to the boys, all right? There are 12 boys, and it's the 11th one that the storyline follows. His name is Joseph. You know, the dude with the coat of many colors. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt, and through a series of events, ends up number two in charge of all of Egypt. There is a massive famine throughout the entire Middle East through some God-ordained events The brothers end up in Egypt. They figure out who Joseph is, vice versa, actually. Joseph figures out who they are and then reveals himself. And then because this famine is so severe, 
Jacob and all of his descendants, which are 70 at this time in the land of Canaan, move to the land of Goshen in the northern part of the Nile Delta of Egypt. And that's where the book of Genesis ends. Exodus begins, the family has now become a nation. They have been fruitful and they have definitely multiplied. They are now a full-fledged nation and the most important and powerful empire on the world stage is actually in Egypt at this time. And the Pharaoh who's on the throne is concerned that this massive number of people are gonna rise up and revolt against him. And so his preemptive strike is to enslave all of them and Israel finds themselves enslaved to the most powerful empire in the world at this time. They cry out to God in their slavery and God hears the cry of the oppressed. He comes to a guy by the name of Moses and he says, Moses, we're gonna work together and we're gonna get them out. God says, I have heard them crying out because God always hears the cry of the oppressed. He always hears the cry of those who are on the underside of power. Those who have great needs, who are in dire straits, God hears their cry and God is responding, but God doesn't just respond because he hears the cry of the the oppressed. God responds because all the way back in Genesis 12, God said to Abram, I'm gonna partner with your descendants so we can put this whole thing back together. But here's the problem. Israel is the plan. There is no plan B. And the plan can't do what the plan is designed to do if it is enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. So through 10 plagues, God gets the Israelites out of Egypt through his servant Moses and his brother and sister Miriam and Aaron, and they bring them out into the desert. The Egyptian army is on their heels. God splits the Red Sea right down the middle or the Sea of Reeds. Israel goes through and God brings the walls of water on top of the Egyptian army, eliminating them. And on the east side of the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, the people proclaim, you are Lord and God. And God's response is, well, that's great that you call me Lord and God, but let's go to Sinai and let's talk about what this relationship is going to look like. So they spend roughly 45 days in the desert traveling to Mount Sinai. And then we come to a very important passage in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 and 20 are two very, very important chapters. But notice what God says through Moses to the Israelites in Exodus 19 in verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this holy nation, a nation that is set apart strictly for the purposes of God, and then God gives them another phrase of identity, and the key line here is this kingdom of priests. Now this phrase is so significant that I gotta take a few moments and illustrate this for you. So I've asked three friends to come join me on stage. Can you help me in welcoming these three to the stage, please? Some of you will know this fine young chap. This is Pastor Travis. Travis, here's what I'm gonna have you do, buddy. I'm gonna have you stand right here. This is his lovely wife, Jess. I'm Jess, I'm gonna have you stand right here. And then this is Nick. I just met Nick about 15 minutes ago, and my thought is, is if I just meet you, you might as well come on stage and let's have some fun. So this is Nick. Now, what we're doing right now is we're giving you a temple scene because Egypt has, or Israel has just come out of Egypt. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt. 
arguably the most theocratic society the world has ever seen. More than 1,500 gods and goddesses have been identified from ancient Egypt. That's a lot. You go to Egypt then, as you do today, you see tombs, which are pyramids, and you see temples. So they understand this language of priest because priest is temple language. So we're going to pretend that we're now in the midst of a temple. Travis, do not let this go to your head, but you're our God. Okay, so this is the God right here. And Nick is our worshiper. So Nick wants to come and offer his worship to the God. But when he comes to the temple, the God is off limits. You do not get to meet with the God. Instead, you meet with the priest, Jeff. And the idea is a priest mediates on behalf of the divine. The priest stands between the God and the worshiper or God in the world. And the understanding in the ancient world was is that if you were a priest, it was understood that you were authorized by the God to act on the God's behalf in the world. You essentially served as the God's hands and feet. And the other awareness was is that if you came and met with a priest, the priest was to be the best representation of what that God was like so that in meeting with the priest, it was as if you were meeting with the God himself. Now get this, God says to Israel, this is you. You stand between me and the rest of the world. When they interact with you, it's as if they are interacting with me. How you act, how you live, how you run your business, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you do what you do, everything is to be understood that you are putting God display on that moment. And God is going to eventually put Israel in the land of Canaan, to be then called the land of Israel, the most highly trafficked area of the entire ancient world. God was sending the nations through that little strip of land. And God's idea was to put his people there so that as the nations came through and interact with his people, they would learn something about the living God of the universe and what that God was up to in the world. Got it? Good, thank you. You guys can get off stage. Thank you so much. Let's thank them for helping me with that. Okay, so now you're a kingdom of priests. You mediate on behalf of the God. And understand for this thing, the God of the world. Now, in order to then live accordingly, you have to understand what does that God want? Well, that's exactly what happens in Exodus 19 and 20 and following is God gives Israel an amazing gift. The gift is what we call the word. Sometimes we translate the word Torah into law, but we would just say this is God's word that he gave. Now, this is incredibly significant because when you understand what's happening in Exodus 19 and 20, it's actually a marriage ceremony. God is marrying himself to the people and his gift to his bride on the wedding day are his very words, his Torah. We translate it as law, but this word Torah actually means teachings, instructions. These are God's instructions for life. And God goes, if you're gonna represent me in the world, this is how you are to live and this is how you are to behave. God gives them his word, the most appropriate gift at their time to help them on their journey ahead. Well, sadly, you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's hard to get Egypt out of the people. 
Because Israel was only supposed to spend about two and a half years in the desert, but through some circumstances, the golden calf, which was kind of a harbinger of other things to come, and then the spies going into the land. Some of you know those stories. Israel spends, oh, an extra 37 and a half years in the desert, bringing their entire desert time to 40 years. Now, we talk about the Israelites are wandering for 40 years. Friends, they're not lost. They know where they're going. God is leading them in a cloud of fire and a pillar a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They know where they're going, but they spend an extra, extra 37 and a half years, 40 full years in the desert. And then we have what's known as the period of the conquest, which is also then followed up by the judges. The conquest is led by Joshua. Moses has now died on the east side of the, of the Jordan River. Joshua leads the people into the land, the conquest of the land. And then you have a very dark period known as the judges. Now, when you hear the word judge, don't think Think about somebody sitting behind a big wooden desk with a gavel in hand. A judge is a leader among the people. And there were 12 that are highlighted in the book of Judges. And the 12th and final judge was a guy by the name of Samson, whose life was an absolute train wreck. And there was so much to his life, somebody really should write a book about it. <laughs> now, after the life of Samson... You have an important character by the name of Samuel who serves as a linchpin for the transition from the judges into what we call the monarchy. Now, the monarchy is where Israel has a ruling king. And if you know anything about the text, God was supposed to be their king. In fact, God says, but I'm your king. And the people respond, yeah, yeah, but we want a king like the other nations have. And God goes, okay, you get what you ask for. And so they got a guy by the name of Saul, whose name literally means asked for. <laughs> Boy, did they get what they asked for. This did not go well. Then God chose a king for them, a guy you know as King David. This is roughly around 1000 BC. David, who is ascribed as a man after God's own heart. And like all the characters before him, David had some really high periods and some really low periods as well. But the height of his high periods comes in 2 Samuel chapter seven. This is spoken through the prophet Nathan talking about what is to come as a result of David's heritage to follow. See, David wanted to build God a temple when God was in the desert with the people, he had them construct what was known as a tabernacle. When they got into the land, it was set up at a place called Shiloh. And eventually now in Jerusalem, where the capital is, David wants to build a house for God. And God, you're going to find, I was going to say to him, no, this will be for the son after you. But there's something even more significant in this conversation. But notice in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God, in this moment to David, promises that there will come a point, there will be an everlasting kingdom. Well, then after David dies, his son Solomon comes to the throne. 
And if you know anything about Solomon's life, it starts off on this amazing beginning where Solomon is granted this amazing discernment, this wisdom that was unparalleled in the ancient world. And as a result of Solomon taking what his dad had started, David, Solomon took Israel to new heights, to an unprecedented golden age in which literally people were coming from all over the world to hear and see and experience what is happening with this guy by the name of Solomon in Jerusalem. One person in particular comes to see him. We know her as the Queen of Sheba. Now, we're not quite sure where Sheba is. Some people think it's in Africa. Other people believe that it was somewhere in Saudi Arabia. But the idea is, is that this queen represents the nations and the nations are coming to Jerusalem. After she's had a chance to experience everything going on in Jerusalem, to spend time with Solomon, she summarizes her entire visit this way. Verse eight of 1 Kings 10. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. And get this, because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. That her entire visit, everything she experiences, she says, okay, in 1 Kings 10, she says, how happy everyone must be. You are put here, Solomon, for justice and righteousness. Your wealth, your power, your influence is for the purpose of justice and righteousness. And oh, if that had only been true the rest of his life. Because Solomon goes downhill from this point. In 1 Kings 9, 10, and 11, a number of things are recounted that I want to recount for you just referencing. It is stated that Solomon's heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you go, what happened? Well, God foresaw Israel wanting a king for themselves. So all the way back in Deuteronomy 17, God outlines that when Israel asks for a king, there are three things a king mustn't ever do. The first is that the king must not have many horses, acquire many horses, or even get them from Egypt because the people are not to go back to Egypt again. Well, what's the deal God has about kings and horses? Well, with horses come chariots. And a horse and a chariot together is a war machine. And God's concern is that a king would build up such a big military that the king would go, I don't need God anymore. Well, we find out that Solomon is bringing in lots and lots of horses. And he's importing them from two places, a place called Q and another place we all know as Egypt. And not only is he importing horses from Egypt, we're told that those horses coming from Egypt, he's now exporting them to other smaller empires around the world. Basically what the text tells us, Solomon became an arms dealer. He found out that war was profitable. So God says no horses. Solomon had a lot. Second thing is God says don't have many wives we find out that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And you go, no wonder the dude needed to be smart. How do you remember all their names? <laughs> and God also says, 
A king should not have a lot of wealth, should not have a lot of silver and gold. And the text tells us that Solomon made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he brought in by way of gold, it's 23 metric tons, but listen to how the writer puts it. Solomon brought in annually 666 talents of gold. 666. The writer is saying what he is doing is evil. What's more, we find out in 1 Kings 9, that Solomon is building God's house and his own house and his military cities with forced labor. That's code for slaves. God rescues Israel from Egypt because they're slaves. And they're crying out because God is about zedakah. God is about social justice. This is not right. This is not justice in the world. And so God acts to free those slaves. And he says over and over and over to them, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget that. And yet in just a few short generations, the oppressed have now become the oppressors. That Solomon, who was supposed to use his wealth, his power, and his influence in order for justice and righteousness, instead he uses it to build his kingdom on the backs of slaves. And this is something God does not tolerate. And many would argue Solomon was the worst king in Israelite history because after his rule and reign is over with, the kingdom divides. And this happens in 931 BC. And now what was originally Israel is now two kingdoms. We have a kingdom in the north, which is known as Israel, takes the name of Israel. And then we have the kingdom in the south that is known as Judah. The northern kingdom will go through 19 rulers. The southern kingdom will go through 20 rulers. One is actually a queen, but she rules as a monarch. So she's part of this number as well. And we see that with both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they struggle. They struggle to do what God is asking them to do. They struggle with being a kingdom of priests. They struggle with putting God on display the way God needs to be put on display to get his name out in the world for people to interact and come into relationship with him. When you read the prophets... The prophets tell us what is going on in both the northern and southern kingdom. And they're all the same. That they're living into idolatry. That they're not following God, but they're following the other gods and goddesses of the land. A second thing they're doing is they're not observing Sabbath. And you go, that's kind of a strange one for the prophets to highlight. Sabbath was a big deal to God because it talked about the rhythms with which he's created the world to function. And it's also an issue of trust for God because when God's people choose not to take a break, they basically say to God, I don't trust you, God, to take care of my needs if I stop working. I have to take care of myself. And the other thing the prophets highlight is justice and righteousness. There isn't any in the land. The people are actually creating more chaos than actually bringing shalom into the world to push out the chaos. And what we see in Isaiah chapter one, a very key chapter, is that in Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah was actually a prophet to the southern kingdom, but in what he is recounting God saying reflects what's going on in both kingdoms, is listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah. And I'd like to give you a forewarning. God is not a happy camper at this time. 
okay? Notice what's recorded in Isaiah 1, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, and the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. God's like, even the donkey knows where to find food. My people don't even know how to find me anymore. They have turned so far away. God's just getting warmed up. Verse 13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all of my being. When God says, I hate them with all my being, look out. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. But then God turns. Listen to what he says. Verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Mishpat. Legal justice. And then his next lines are all zedakah, social justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then listen to what God says after this, a phrase many of you know. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool, if you are willing and obedient. They're not. In fact, they can kind of care less. This is why we have so many prophets. A prophet is a gap closer. Here's what I mean by that. A prophet comes on the stage and says, this is what God has asked, and this is how you're living. There's a gap. We need to close this gap. And for the people, they go, yeah, but we don't, we don't really care about closing the gap. And this is what leaves God in a conundrum. This is God's conundrum at this time. What do you do? when there are the shattered pieces of creation all over the place and you have put a plan in place for the restoration of all things and you have taken on a people and you said you to be a kingdom of priests and together we'll partner to put the world back together. What happens when the body that you have taken and enjoined yourself with looks nothing like you? What happens when therefore everything you are against? God goes, I can't have that. I can't let this go on any longer. So at this time, the empire on the world stage is a group known as Assyria. And in 722 BC, under the leadership of either Shalmaneser V or Sargon II, nobody knows for certain, they come into the northern kingdom and they conquer them. And Assyria has a foreign policy which says, we're going to take the conquered people, we're going to send them all around the known world to our other conquered areas, we're going to force them to intermarry, their bloodline will thin, and eventually they will be no more. And when people talk about the lost tribes of Israel today, that's exactly what they're talking about. Now, what the Assyrians did do is they left the poor people and the farmers in the land, and then they brought other people, other conquered people from other parts of the world and brought them in, and they had them intermarry with the people that were still in the land, and they became known as the Samaritans. So a little fun fact of history for you on that one. Now, the northern kingdom is gone. 
And then you have the southern kingdom who's not getting their lives right. And you have a guy by the name of Jeremiah who comes and says, get your lives right. You saw what happened to the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had great prophets as well. They had prophets like uh, excuse me, uh, Elijah and Elisha were two of the major prophets that were in the north. The southern kingdoms had Isaiah. And now Jeremiah says to them, get your act together or what happened to them is gonna happen to you. You know what their response to Jeremiah is? We got the temple. I mean, we got the temple. What does that mean? See, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem and it was understood that God localized his presence, that that is where heaven and earth met. God was in Jerusalem, in the temple and the people of the southern kingdom of Judah in which Jerusalem was the, the capital of, they basically said, God lives here. He's not gonna let his house get burned. We're gonna be just fine. We can continue to do what we want to do. And Jeremiah says, don't be so sure about that. And sure enough, Another empire comes on the world stage and in 605 BC fights a decisive battle at a place called Carchemish and the Assyrian army who's allied with the Egyptian army is conquered by somebody known as Babylon, the empire of Babylon. In 605 BC, under the leadership of their new ruler, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and takes over things. And he takes the youngest and the brightest, and he deports them to Babylon. You know these characters as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, that's not their Hebrew names. Daniel, yes, but you have um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them by their Babylonian names, but they're true Hebrew names. And they're deported in 605 BC. Then you have another deportation in 597 with the likes of such people as Ezekiel gets deported to Babylon. Now, Babylon has a different foreign policy than what Assyria has. Assyria's foreign policy was, again, to send people all over the ancient world. What the Babylonians did is they came in and conquered a people and then uprooted them and then took them as a whole community to another part of the empire, and it happened to be in the Babylon area for the Jews. So the Jews are taken out as an entire community. But the key date then is in 586 BC because this is also the third deportation for King Nebuchadnezzar, but this was the dramatic one because King Nebuchadnezzar had enough of these people and he came in and he burned the entire temple to the ground. Absolutely devastating to the people of Judah. And then we have another deportation that was four years later in 582, but 586 is the major one. That's where the most Jewish exiles are uprooted and deported to Babylon. And they spend 70 years in exile. Now that's a really nice round number. And you go, well, why 70 years in exile? Well, the exile was because they had chosen to live into idolatry, because they had not taken care of the poor and needy. They were not about justice and righteousness. They were not adhering to Sabbath. What you get here, though, is one more piece to this puzzle, because in 2 Chronicles 36, we are told that during these 70 years of the exile, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. 
See, all the way back in the first five books, God says to the people, when you come into the land, work the land for six years, but on the seventh year, it is to have a Sabbath of its own because you're in relationship to creation. And the understanding was the people never gave a land a Sabbath. And so the 70 years of exile were also connected to the 70 years of the land finally getting its Sabbath rest because we are in fact connected to creation. And we have this here. Well, the people are in Babylon and they've blown it and they know it. Psalm 137 verse one says this, by the river of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we thought of Zion, Jerusalem. They blew it and they knew it. And it is no doubt during this time while they are weeping by the rivers of Babylon that they go, Man, all the way back in our scriptures, all the way back in our story, there's something about a coming Messiah. This Messiah character that was prophesied all the way back in Deuteronomy 18 and then the Psalms 2, 89, 110, Isaiah 42, and later on Daniel 7 and others, they recall, yes, there's a Messiah who's going to come, who's going to get things right. One passage in particular I want to read comes from Isaiah chapter 9, talking about this one who is going to come. Notice what Isaiah wrote. Verse two of chapter nine, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then verse six, a passage many of you know oh so well. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of? Prince of peace. Prince of of shalom. This whole connection of shalom is going to come through this person. And then notice this very next line. It says, he will reign, or excuse me, of the greatness of his government and peace of his shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And then it says, the zeal of the Almighty will accomplish this. This will be from that time on and forever. And so we find out that this Messiah is not only a Prince of Shalom, but this Prince of Shalom is gonna come through the means of justice and righteousness. And this is what the people are probably recalling in Babylon. Well, we know about the Babylonian Empire. Uh, We actually know a lot about the Babylonian Empire, but here's the interesting thing. They were only on the world stage on the throne of the world empires for only about 70 years or so. Because in 559 BC, a Persian came to the throne, a guy we know as Cyrus the Great. And over the next 20 years, Cyrus is going to take out all competitors in the ancient world. And effectively in 539, Cyrus is going to walk into Babylon and officially usurping Babylon. And now Persia is the seat of world power. They are the empire to be reckoned with. Now, they have a different foreign policy than the Babylonians, the Assyrians. What they have a foreign policy is, is that we're going to take all conquered people and allow them to return to their homeland and they can 
rebuild their sacred structures, which led to the next year in 538 BC, the Edict of Cyrus, which put this into effect, which two years later, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the first wave of Jewish exiles return to the land and they begin rebuilding the temple. And 20 years later, in 516 BC, the temple is rededicated to God. 60 years later, a guy by the name of Ezra in 457 BC shows up. And then 12 years after him, you have Nehemiah in 445 and he rebuilds the walls. And for the next 200 years, Persia is the seat of world power. Until 336 BC, a strapping young youth at the ripe old age of 20 comes to the Greece throne. He is known as Alexander the Great. And in the next 13 years, Alexander the Great is going to conquer the entire world. He's going to die just a few weeks before his 33rd birthday of a fever in Babylon. He will be buried in Alexandria, but his empire of the Greece empire will have been on the world stage during those 13 years. And according to the prophecy in Daniel, the empire of Alexander the Great is divided among four of his generals. The one that gets the easternmost part of the empire is a guy by the name of Seleucus, and he founds the Seleucid Empire. And as a result of one of those kings coming to power in 175 BC, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, that was his nickname, the arrival of the majesty one. Antiochus Epiphanes IV comes to the throne in the Seleucid Empire. There's a revolt that happens in the land and over the next 25 years or so to about 142 BC, the Jewish, exile, or the Jewish people are fighting a decisive battle against the Greeks and they gain autonomy. And for about 80 years, from about 142 BC to 63 BC, they have their own autonomy in the land until the empire that's been sweeping up the entire world finally comes into the land of Israel in 63 BC. And now we have the famous Roman Empire. Now, here's what's riveting about the oncoming of the Roman Empire is that according to Nebuchadnezzar's dream recorded in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, again, who was the king of Babylon, he had a dream and Daniel interpreted the dream and the dream basically came out in the interpretation this way. Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be four kingdoms that are going to arise that included yours. Understood to be Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And when that fourth kingdom comes to the world stage, it's going to be at that point in time where God's everlasting kingdom is really going to pick up steam. And the Romans have a foreign policy that say... We're going to take the people who are already conquered, they can remain in their homeland, but we're gonna put local rulers over them. And you know the local ruler at the time of Jesus' birth as Herod the Great. And somewhere in six, five to six BC, in a little corner of the Roman Empire, in a little place called Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem, to a poor teenage couple, the eternal son is born. And we know him in English as Jesus. His Hebrew name is Yeshua. And what this Galatians 4.4 passage tells us is that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son. And now we have the life of Jesus on the stage. Well, Herod the Great finds out about this king 
Because we find out that at his birth, we have an angel that shows up to a bunch of shepherds and the angel says, glory to God in the highest. Oh, no, no, let me give you the first part of this. He says this, uh, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And then a whole other bunch of angels show up and they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom. Goodwill to all. That is in Luke chapter two, where we get the heralding of Jesus's birth. Herod the Great finds out about this and he sends men to kill the baby Jesus. But Mary and Joseph get warned in a dream. Herod is coming after the boy. Get out of here and go to Egypt. But wait a minute, you're not supposed to ever go back that way. Well, what we find out is that the entire life of Jesus is lived on the canvas of Israel's story. And just as Israel's story got rocking with the exodus out of Egypt, so too does Jesus when he comes out of Egypt to relive the entire Israelite story and to get right what they got wrong. We don't get much of Jesus' childhood. We get one story when he's 12 years old and then his next stories come when he is at about the age of 30. Jesus has begun his ministry, but there's a guy who is proclaiming the ministry before Jesus actually hits his ministry. We all know him as John the Baptist. So in Matthew chapter three, with John the Baptist, this is what we get in Matthew chapter two about John the Baptist. Excuse me, Matthew chapter three. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now this phrase kingdom of heaven is something that John is going to talk about and it's going to become a massive theme, not only for John, but also for Jesus. But when he says has come near, that literally means in the Greek, it has arrived, it has begun. Well, John in his preaching upsets the apple cart. He gets thrown in prison because he's offended Herod Antipas, who is Herod the Great's son, who is ruling one third of Israel at this time, but is responsible for the area that John the Baptist is doing his ministry in. John is put into prison. Jesus has already had his baptism, received the Holy Spirit, spent 40 days in the desert, being tempted by the desert. Why 40 days in the desert? Because Israel spent 40 years and Jesus is gonna get right what they got wrong. And then he's going to come out of it. Verse 12 of Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 9 2. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then get the next line. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John has a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. John gets put in prison. Jesus steps up and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Very early in Jesus' ministry. These are the first words out of his mouth according to Mark. We see this when his ministry kicks into gear. These are his first words. Now, we get Jesus' first synagogue sermon 
in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is going to read from the prophet Isaiah, a scroll from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And at the end of his reading of this short passage, he's going to say to the people in attendance, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Listen to what Jesus says his ministry is all going to be about. And you're going to hear the language of justice and righteousness and shalom all over this. Listen to these words from Luke 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus goes, that is what I am about. That's what my ministry is all going to be about. I am going to demonstrate the goodness and the mercy and the compassion and the favor of God on all people. And Jesus does just that. And then the language we get from Hebrews chapter four is that Jesus was a high priest, is our high priest. Now, for those of you who have been with the Bible for any length of time, you will immediately run to the connection of Jesus's death, which is a great way to run because it's absolutely true. Jesus died on our behalf. He became our high priest to allow us access to God the Father. Because the high priest throughout the scriptures could enter into the most holy place, the presence where God, where God's presence was, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, in order to offer sins on behalf of the whole group of Israel. And yet Jesus became our high priest to reconcile us to God, yes. But also get this understanding that if Jesus is the high priest... And the followers of God are a kingdom of priests. And by the way, in 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter affirms that any follower of Jesus, this is our fundamental identity as the kingdom of priests, that Jesus as our high priest set the example for how we were supposed to live. See, understand something. Jesus didn't come to die. He didn't come just to die. Jesus also came to live and he came to show us this is what it looks like when a priest, the high priest who has mediated between God and the world comes and demonstrates this is what it looks like when God's will and God's way advances in this world. This is what God's hands and feet look like in flesh and blood of partnering with God to accomplish God's purposes in this world. Jesus set the example for us to follow because Jesus didn't come just to die. Jesus came to live, which by the way, if Jesus's only purpose was to come and die, he didn't have to do what he did. He didn't have to grow up learning the Torah. He didn't have to take 12 disciples and train them. Why 12? Because that connects to the 12 tribes of Israel. Because again, Jesus' entire story is on the canvas of Israel. He didn't have to walk around the dusty, dry Galilean hillsides as a rabbinic, itinerant teacher living a very difficult lifestyle if his only purpose was to come and die. He could have just sat down by the Sea of Galilee, made sure he didn't sin, didn't sin at all, take as many swims as he wanted to, and at his time he could go up to Jerusalem and die if that was his only point. But it wasn't. Jesus also came to live. And he came to show us this is what it looks like to partner with God in flesh and blood. But the way he did lead, live his life led to his death. 
And so Jesus does die on a cross. And as the gospels all tell us, Jesus died for the sins of this world. Now, for those of you who are here at Easter, you'll recall that John has a very helpful set of details when it comes to talking about Jesus's death on the cross. Because what John tells us is that Jesus died on a cross in the midst of a garden. And then Jesus was buried in a tomb and three days later rose from the grave in the midst of a garden. And this is absolutely paramount to the story because all the way back in Genesis 3, sin and death are linked. Jesus could not simply just die on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus also had to rise from the grave to validate the sacrifice and to also conquer death because all the way back in the beginning of the story, sin and death are linked. And when God says to Jesus, I need you to obey me about that tree, Unlike Adam, Jesus obeyed his father about the tree. And this is how Colossians 1 and 2 puts it. Begin with Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it all away, nailing it to the cross. The good news that Colossians tells us is that because of Jesus' sacrifice, the debt that we owe the creator of the universe for our own sin, our own brokenness, our own broken pieces, Paul tells us that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was sufficient for us to be made right with God. But that's part of it. Yeah, you can clap to that. That's good news. But the news gets even better. Because in Colossians 1, it says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making shalom through his blood shed on the cross. Understand this. This is so huge if you get your mind around. The purpose of the cross was not the forgiveness of sins. The purpose of the cross was the restoration of all things, which included the forgiveness of sins. See, the reality is, is that the cross has done something for us. It has reconciled us back to God. When we go back to these four relationships, this relationship with God, we have been made right with God. When God looks at a follower of Jesus, he does not see our sin. He does not see our brokenness. He doesn't see our shattered pieces. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ that was sufficient for us. And we are now made in right relationship with God. But... If we just say to others, this is the good news of the gospel. If you want to know what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, here's the good news. You can be made right with God. That's really great news, but here's the problem. We just shortchanged 75% of the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is that the power of the resurrection is available to us. It's not just something that Jesus has done for us through the cross. It's now something that Jesus wants to do in us as a result of the cross. 
Because the reality is we can have a relationship with God. We can have said the prayer. We could have had that spiritual moment. We could have had that experience where we came forward or raised our hand or said the prayer. Or how do we say that? We can say, yeah, I'm in right relationship with God. But the reality is, is that we are still broken on the inside. Our own pain, our own selfishness, our own pride, our own struggles, our own addictions. It's part of our story. And God says the good news of the gospel is that I want to begin addressing that in you right now. Because this is about shalom. And it's about all of you being whole. Because the reality is that we're also broken with others. War, bigotry, a lack of forgiveness, broken relationships, it's a reality. Creation. Man, Paul tells us in Romans 8, the creation groans for the restoration of all things. God says, the good news of the gospel is that I want to put the broken pieces of you back together right now in this life. This is what Jesus' early believers understood. They needed a little bit of help after Jesus rose from the dead. He spent 40 more days, and Acts tells us, talking to his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus will ascend, and he will go up. And 10 days later, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will come down in Acts 2. And just like all the way over in Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus, when God rescues and redeems Israel from their slavery in Egypt, 50 days later, they come to Sinai and receive the gift of God's word. Just happens in this story because after Jesus has rescued and redeemed us from our slavery to sin, 50 days later at Pentecost, God gives the next most appropriate gift for his people on the journey ahead to do what he's called them to do, and that is his spirit. We have been given the word and the spirit to do what God is asking us to do. And then you have the likes of people like Paul, John, and Peter who write predominantly the rest of the entire New Testament And they talk about, here are the ramifications of this entire storyline, beginning all the way back in Genesis 1 to the fact that Jesus has died and he has risen and he has ascended back to heaven and he is king of both heaven and earth. Here are the ramifications. And they talk about, so then how shall we live as a result of all that has been going on? And then we come to Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, because here's the reality, isn't it? There is still sin and there is still death in the world, isn't there? There's still brokenness. But what we get back at the cross is that when Jesus died on the cross, the serpent struck his heel. But with the empty tomb, Jesus crushed his head. And he put death and brokenness, and pain, and suffering on notice. You have a time limit. Everything is sufficient because of what happened at the cross, and it will come to fruition at the end of the story. And it's in Revelation 21 and 22 that we get that picture in to the end of the story. Friends, bask in these words, because this is the reality that will come at some unforeseen point in our future. Listen to these words. Revelation 21, verse 1. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. There will no longer be cancer. There will no longer be tragic accidents. There will no longer be earthquakes and tsunamis and war and brokenness in your own family. God is going to put the whole thing back together because here's what it says is in the next verse. God who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making everything new, which is God's way of saying, I'm not gonna make all new things. (laughs) I'm gonna make all things new. This is restorative language. And let me read you just the first three verses of Revelation 22, and then we're going to pull this all together. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit. Of course, 12 crops. 12 is the number of community, of restoration, of wholeness. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And then again, the great proclamation in verse three, no longer will there be any curse. Friends, God, in Genesis three, Solomon put the whole thing back together. And I would love to be able to magically take all these pieces and pull them back together. But the second best thing I have is this. <laughs> because it is God who's gonna take those pieces and make this. And the great proclamation of Revelation 21 and 22 is that the shalom that was shattered in the garden has now been restored in the city. Amen. And here's our reality today. We are here. We are somewhere between the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ where everything will be brought to its full restorative shalom. And it is our responsibility and it is our goal to take the story forward. In the biblical text, salvation, coming into relationship with God is never the end game, it is the beginning. That when you come into a reconciled relationship with God, it launches you on a journey of your own personal wholeness and restoration, but also, again, joining with God and one another to bring restoration and wholeness to a world that desperately needs to know that there is hope. And that is the calling of followers of God, is to join God in what he is doing, to take the story to its end, to bring shalom into the present, and to push out the darkness and the chaos. And in order for us to understand our calling to do that well, it is absolutely imperative that we understand this thing that Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. 
Because in Luke 4.43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns and villages because that is why I was sent. 50 times in Matthew alone, Jesus talks about the kingdom. And for Jesus, everything he did in his life and in his death had everything to do with Jesus' message of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, for the last 2,000 years, we've preached Jesus, and it's about time we preach his message because this is where we stand in the story. And what we're going to find out over the next several weeks is that the kingdom of heaven is already and even more to come. Hence the series. Because over the next five weeks, <laughs> Craig and I are gonna continue to unpack what did Jesus mean by this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Because when we more fully understand Jesus' message, we can understand how we can better insert ourselves into this redemptive story. And friends, that in roughly a nutshell is Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Ah, <laughs> uh, bless God. Won't you join and stand with me? It is 12.15. For those of you who have kids, the ministry workers are wondering, what in the world happened? So I would just ask that you would race out to get them. Also know that as you're leaving, you are going to get a copy of this timeline on a nice card stock that you can go home and take as well. If you are a guest this morning, so great having you here. Uh, we'd love to connect with you in the lobby. If you would like to go out there, there is a guest reception area, a place that just says hello. We'd love to connect with you. And as always, there's, there are people up front that are gonna be wearing orange tags that would love to pray with you if anything was stirred for you during our time today. And friends, I'm just gonna simply end with a blessing in this way. We started the teaching today reciting the first verse of the Bible. So let's end with our blessing, the last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22 verse 21. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Take care.